Fear the Walking Dead, the podcast, an unofficial discussion of the news and events surrounding Fear the Walking Dead with Quinn Warner, Stephen Payne, and Bruce McGee. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast, and we're having to catch up for last week's episode and this week. We've been kind of busy running <laughs> from zombies, I guess. Yeah, boy. Um, It'll do that you to you. What's that? It'll do that to you. That's it. So <laughs> what did you think of uh, the two episodes? Uh, I like them. Uh, let me go back to my notes from yeah, last week. Yeah, it was last week uh, Pillar of Salt, maybe, and then uh, was that week before last Pillar of Salt? Maybe. Of course, that's a reference to Lot's wife. Right. It opened in the Colonia with the husband, wife, and daughter, and they've they're trying to stage an escape. Right. And as we and as we get deeper into the narrative, we find out that they're residents of the Colonia, and they've had all they can take, and they're ready to break out. Although it was hard to see, I guess their reasoning was supplies are running out, so we need to uh, make a run for it. But there was nothing, you know, terribly horrible happening to the people there. Um, it makes you wonder, though, doesn't it? At least it did me because I went, I watched it, and then I rewatched the the other broadcast at eleven or whenever they, you know, re-aired the thing. Uh-huh. And. It made me think that the colony or maybe any kind of settlement is a double-edged sword because you do have that community, but like you said, you can run out of supplies. So unless there's some sort of a source for supplies... Well, and if you've fallen back on the old tribal structure, you're only as strong as your chief. And their leaving actually sparked the the head guy, the pharmacist, um, to uh, kind of tilt... You know, it was his tipping point. Like, uh, he becomes paranoid, and he won't let them make a run for water, bring water, and so that's going to bring their enemies down upon them. It, it seems to be, again, the, almost the medieval model where you have the little fiefdoms all over the place, and the local lord is is all that stands between you and the, the forces of destruction, I suppose. Well, and if you look back over the last, 200,000 years that's been the primary way humans have organized themselves uh, is tribally. Um, you know, civilization is a great innovation. Yeah, and a very fragile one at that. Right. It can be easily lost. Yeah, I told you our my one of my advisors in graduate school, had that old librarian, um, Dr. Rodriguez, had said that there's a as societies get more sophisticated, they become more fragile. Right, it doesn't and take it, that much to tip them over. No, and look at look at what we're seeing right here, and look what we see in the world around us. How fragile the social structure and the economic structure, everything else is. Right. So this is kind of the the cautionary tale once again. I mean, I think the whole series is kind of cautionary, but but you know this this episode, that pillar of salt, really emphasized it. Yeah, it does. Um, what else happened in that episode? They they have that couple. The husband has already figured out how to disguise himself like a zombie, just like uh, yeah. Nick has. Which I thought I've was read pretty... some online criticisms. People are getting kind of tired of this. 
I wonder what attracts the zombie. Do you know? Is it is it the sight of the blood, the smell of the blood? I mean, what is it? Or, or what repels them? I guess maybe it's a better way to put it here. Well, nothing they're... repels them. You can get them to ignore you if you smell like another zombie. So it may be the scent of the yeah. the scent of blood or scent of decay, maybe. I think it would be the decay. You know, because they're literally decaying. Um, and so, so that might be if you have they a don't, smart enough. For some reason, that's not suitable. Other zombie flesh is not suitable for them. So, when, so they're not they're um, not cannibal they're not cannibalistic in that regard. <laughs> not in that regard, just in the broader sense. So that would be a way to keep them away, at least, until you could figure out a way to do, you know beat the virus or the bacteria or whatever is repel them. If not by literal blood, then by the chemicals in the blood, maybe the, the iron or whatever's in the blood. Yeah, again, um, I think they're more attracted to movement. Um, so they see a little movement going on, and that's what they move toward. So it's not a not a heat uh like a viper would be attracted to, like they've got heat receptors, you know, in their their head or whatever. I bet they would eat a, you know, something like a reptile. I don't know that I've ever seen them do that, but I would think they would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen them eat humans and dogs. I guess mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, have they, have they eaten anything else in the other show, like any cats or horses or anything? Oh yeah, they've eaten horses. I hadn't noticed cats. <laughs> uh, Maybe cats or <laughs> cats or slaves. <laughs> So, let's see, pillar of salt. Ophelia, we find out that she's alive. Mm-hmm. And she leaves the hotel and starts heading back to the United States, maybe to reunite with an old love. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it seems rather unmotivated. I wonder why she had just, you know, ditched them without saying why. That's well. It's pretty mysterious, and if you recall the the after show, the the Talking Dead, she was talking about the disappearance of her father, uh, the Ruben Ruben Blattis's character. Um, with his name, um, it's not Salvatore. What his name escapes me right now. But anyhow, she was really canny about the way she referenced him. She said something at first. It sounded as if I'm, if I'm recalling correctly, she sounded as though he might be dead. But then she turned right around and said he appears to be dead or something. So, you know, it makes you wonder how much they know about what's coming up in in future episodes. In other words, there's an out. I mean, they could he could be brought back. He might not have died. Right. Well, um, <clears throat> yeah. They aren't going to give any away, thing away on Fear the Walk. I mean, the Talking Dead, because mm-hmm. the suspense is part of what their exactly exactly is, and people don't want to know. Like, no, there are some shows I want to know what's going to happen, but there are others like these that I simply do not. You know, like it's the ultimate in spoilers. The ultimate in spoilers because it makes you come. Well, back and the word "spoil" is there for a reason. You know, it ruins it in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why watch the rest of the? Well, particularly why watch the, even the not just the next episode. It could be why watch the rest of the series. If you right. they, you know they, if you notice when they do the teasers, they give you just enough information again to hook you and then reel you in. Well, there are shows that the spoilers don't really matter. Like you don't 
like you can watch them over and over even though you've seen every episode. Um, but um, this is not one of those. Although you can probably watch them again, but, you know, watching it for the first time, you want that surprise. Well, back on Ophelia, uh, I was really struck. They're using the flashback again. They had her and the man in happier right. times, you know, the fiancé. Fiancé. <laughs> and and he gives her the ring. And I guess this is going to be the, the best way for them to reveal stuff about the characters is the flashback either right. where the character reveals something about himself or herself or whether we peer into the memory. It gives that kind of illusion of, you know, looking back over their memories of happier times or whatever. And it gives her actors a chance to take a bath. So I'm sure they appreciate the flashback. <laughs> But it is a handy device. The flashback the oh, yeah. is. Well, and it you know it breaks the monotony of everything being collapsed all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nice to see. Uh, well, it em- it emphasizes that contrast between the the old world, which is relatively peaceful or normal, maybe is a good way to put it, and now everything is this new normal, and it's not very peaceful. Right. And so it's again it, struggle. Yeah, exactly. It's this is it, it points that up every time you see a flashback. Even it makes you wonder about somebody like a, a Nick uh, with all the problems that he's had, as we see in that episode just from the other night uh, with their family and so forth. Just what you know? How normal was it to be a drug addict? I mean, I don't know. It's um, well, and um, you know, you gotta ask. You know, Times Madison is really badass. Kind of rooting for her and is up to him. Then at other times, just like, how stupid is she? Mm-hmm. Um, like, um, at the end of this, the first episode, we're talking about he turns on the lights for the building so that everybody for miles around can be attracted. Mm-hmm. And then you open up in the next episode. Have we kind of summarized the first episode? Uh, Not quite. Well, we, yeah, we had still some. There are several things. Um, yeah. The 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 near death of Strand. I think we really ought to go into right. because that's that's pretty powerful sequence here. Uh, the woman and, co- shows up at the front door and stabs him. <laughs> and you get to see um, Madison being strong. And at this mm-hmm. point, it's just like I've had it with you. You're going into the hole. You know, we're going to lock you up, and we're not going to kill you, but we can't trust you around the group. We can't have this behavior in a group that needs each other to survive. You know, this is a a luxury of the old days, you know. Uh, I was I was really taken with and, and rather amused by the the one liners while they were trying to save Strand's life. I mean, it made me think of the old dark humor in Mash, you know, the old gallows humor from that old series. I mean, it's right making very very light of various serious serious events like life and death. And this this was a, a very similar sensibility. When they were so what was it? I'm trying to see if I wrote anything down in that particular passage there. I don't think I did. Just just the general black humor. Or, you know, the gallows humor. Uh yeah, I didn't write any lines down. But I mean it was pretty funny. He's he's 
very he's pretty deadpan for most of the episodes right. anyhow. <laughs> so that it's that very laconic kind of humor. He maintains his cool. Um you know, like the Fonzier. Uh, or like the man with no name in the Clint Eastwood, you know, the spaghetti westerns. Yeah, he's not doing <laughs> the panic and uh, screaming, you know. Um, and uh, also, Madison and Elena go to the uh, Walmart bandit warehouse. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, to trade, and she hears a possibility... Right, right. Of an American, a greasy haired American. And she naturally assumes it's Nick. And we know that it is Nick. Mm-hmm. But there's no reason for her to know that. And so she I think the hope, her hope and desperation are, yeah, they're, they're, it's almost like magic thinking, don't you think? It's causing but her to the, think that. The thing is, Nick is where he wants to be, which is away from them for whatever reason. He is um, he is unable to be with his family. Um, I think you know she kind of holds him back in a way, like she sees him as this drugged out you know guy that she's got to take care of, and so she doesn't allow him to take care of himself. So he feels like he has to be gone from her just in order for him to do what he needs to do mm-hmm, uh, to be a, his own man. How did you like what they used to? This uh, points up the collapse of the economy. What they used to get the drugs at the super, the the apocalyptic supermarket. <laughs> they they right. have the cooler, and they got fish, which is pretty smelly. <laughs> yeah, somebody said that the real life fish. You know, when they opened it up, they started to stink. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so here's you know here's what we're using to trade. I mean, it's this is the barter economy because that's all that matters in in an apocalypse. It's not going right. to be any kind of monetary. I mean, the monetary system becomes something quite entirely different, like it does in really in ancient culture, right? With the you know uh, we we've, well, we've seen money, you know. yeah, well, and we've seen uh, or at least well you know even in Roman times, I guess they I mean they had coinage, but I guess they used some barter even back then, didn't they? I mean, as I'm as, sure they did. It's just money drives out barter because it's so much easier. Right. But if you don't have money, which I'm sure a lot of people did not, then you have to resort to barter. I have heard that we actually have more U.S. currency, like paper money, circulating outside of the countries and in. And if you've seen pictures of, you know, when we send pallets full of $100 bills to um, to um, Iraq, then you, you can imagine that that might be true. Mm-hmm. You know, because money, I mean, physical currency, those physical dollar bills um, are much harder to trace. Mars numbered, but, you know, it's still harder to keep up with than electronic mm-hmm. transfers. Well, they probably don't have a very long shelf life, so to speak, either. I mean, if, you know, the thing keeps changing hands so many times, and it's going to get torn. Uh, I don't know how much of it will, you know, in the old days at least, I don't know how much the ink will wear off. But, I mean, certainly the money gets very torn, gets, or at the very least gets wrinkled. Right. 
Uh, so it, yeah, it has again, a shelf life. It, yeah, it's a perishable kind of a thing. It's, it's not going to last like coinage will, which is made out of metal. Right. Um, so, but it's, it's it's fascinating to see this how they're they're trying to struggle to recreate a or to create an economy, just like they're creating a re, or recreating a social structure and everything else. You well, know, and the, this area has survived much better than uh, what we saw back in Georgia or even in California. You know, they they're bartering, but they probably weren't doing stuff that far removed from that to start with. You know, oh, the people in the colony, yeah, well, all of you know, they're kind of their own mic. You've got they don't all know about each other, but you've got the mm-hmm. store, you've got the colony, and you've got the hotel, and they're all in proximity to each other. They yeah, maybe within the same, back and forth. Are they in the same town or just within a few miles of each other? I think within a few miles of each other. So there you have the beginnings of two little communities, essentially. Three. A three, okay. Because you've got the, the, you know, what are those guys, narcos or? Um, yes, the, the ones that are running the supermarket. Right. Yeah, the, well, that's an interesting deal. Back in the 90s, maybe even back to the 80s, but I think for sure back to the 90s, back to the Clinton administration, uh, when we were giving all the money down to you know different countries in Latin America to try to help them to fight the war on drugs, and of course right. we were, which was pretty hilariously bad, a bad policy. But but that being said, uh, there were all these ballads that came out celebrating the exploits of these narco traffickers. And you, you, I mean, I've now, read some stuff about that. Ballads? There's a it's a genre. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's rather like the the legends of Robin Hood if you think about it. Yeah. Uh, because these are people's heroes who are standing up to the man. You know, they're standing well, up to the establishment. In lots of these places, what has the government done for them? Really, nothing. And you know, that's part of the attraction of these terrorist groups like ISIS. Mm-hmm. They come in, they set up, you know, some kind of government, and it's horrible. But a bad order is better than. Because chaos. chaos, you know, chaos is, you can't know what's coming. You don't know anything, whatever is going to happen next. Exactly. Well, and it and it arises when there is a crisis, and a lot of times the crisis, if it's not a military crisis, you have an economic crisis. You have people with feelings of dispowerment. I mean, they're they're feeling helpless. They're well, feeling yeah, yeah, they, That's when they fall for that. In various places around the world. Mm-hmm. And coming back from chaos is always a you know top priority. <laughs> well, this 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 is another you know one of our political rants here. But I mean, this is why you cannot just send in more military might against a, an organization like an ISIS. You know, you can't do that because, quite frankly, it's just going to worsen the situation. It's just going to ramp up the violence and ramp up. It's got to be some form of what they call smart power. Um, and for that, you have to have smart people, uh, <laughs> which which leaves out a lot of people in the, <laughs> on a certain side of the aisle. <laughs> well, we um, we saw in uh, Iraq, we just went and tumped over the government and MacGruvered it. You know, um, let's run in there and see what happens. And now we've seen what happens. And, yeah, I like I liked all those flowers that they were throwing out in the streets when they greeted us, don't you? Yeah, they will <laughs> greet us as heroes. Yeah. And, you know, initially, 
I think there was some amount of dancing in the street because Saddam was terrible, but then chaos followed, and that's what we're talking about. People mm-hmm. want some kind of order, and they'll accept a kind of a bad order as well, long as order. That's, yeah, if you compare him to the narco-traffickers, Saddam knew his own people. As, as monstrous as he was, he knew how to juggle those different groups of people. I mean, granted, it was by coercion that he controlled the populace and fear and intimidation, et cetera, but he still con- he could more or less control the situation. And as you said, when we topped it over, we destroyed the little bit of order there was. Right. Uh, and look at these narco-traffickers. This is, this is a similar situation. They knew and know their people. And 15 years ago, we uh, have this country where people, um, you know, where they have huge reserves of oil and they still can't keep the lights on. Um, mm-hmm. Or they still can't um, all day, every day. Well, this breaks... Let's do a little bit, if we can, about Alejandro and... Uh, is it Chris? I'm trying to see where I'm, where in my notes. But he's he's the pharmacist. And... There's a really interesting thing in here that this is to me hey, at least Nick. More, Nick yeah okay Nick and, and yeah. Alejandro yeah and he's sounding to me more and more like a blasted cult leader. Well, and like um, I say that the leaving of those people, which is small in and of itself, seems to have pushed him over the edge. Mm-hmm. So now you know Nick, as much as he longs to follow people, um. Nick also thinks for himself, mm-hmm. and he sees, okay, what he wants to do is going to be really bad for the colonia. We need to speak back more forcefully to him. He doesn't want to mm-hmm. undermine him. He's still loyal to the guy. He kind of loves the guy in a way, but um, he knows when he's making a mistake, and he's willing to stand up, and then the the girl he's with doesn't want to do that yet. Yeah, here it is. I had written down the conflict between Nick and Alejandro. Uh, Alejandro demands absolute trust, and so I wrote, "This is shaping up to be cultic behavior." It's the the cult. It's the cult leader's version of it. You know, the, the cult leader sets up the us versus them sort of binary sort of world where it's you know we're we are the the um, conservators of truth and the rest of the world is not. You know, we're the conservators of order, et cetera. The rest of the world's not. And look what you get right here. Right. It's it's very much like a cult and it's kind of a scary sort of a scary I mean I I mean it's you have to wonder in a way what what is worse. I mean yes the zombies are bad, but this if, if a person is controlling your life to the point where you can't essentially can't make a move without that person's permission, that's pretty scary too. Yeah, and also, you know, if if you've got this kind of, a, you know, I call it a tribal arrangement where you've got a strong, usually a man but not always at the top, um, if their judgment goes bad, and we saw both the leaders that happen, both um, Madison and the pharmacist this week, because, you know, Madison's been stepping up. And doing some good leader stuff, and then it's like, oh, Nick may be somewhere. I'm going to turn on the light so we can attract him uh, and everybody else. You know, and uh, at the opening of this week, we at least saw that reality had 
uh, sunk in from Madison. They've got oodles of people at the door who are, for some reason, not breaking it down by force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're just saying, sorry, we don't have the supplies to let you in. Um, which is kind of, um, you know, like, how big do you want your group? The bigger it is, the more it can defend itself. So there's right. an advantage there. But the quicker you run through supplies, A. Well, and, and, and the harder it is to control, frankly. Yes, the harder it is to keep them all on the same page. So uh, uh, internal th- conflicts are right. This is, this is also a reason why, in the Enlightenment, why you get Rousseau and people worrying about whether, I mean, their republic that they want to create, like what they saw in the cantons in Switzerland, is small. Right. So they could not envision, people like Rousseau at least, could not envision a large republic like the United States eventually became. I mean, they couldn't envision that because they f- felt like one of the first problems was going to be about control and trying well, to... Yeah, it is a republic scalable. And, um, yeah. You know, the ancient republics, you know, Rome might call people citizens, but the, by the time they were doing that, being a citizen didn't count for much as far as voting on stuff. You know, early on, the people voting were the people who were your neighbors, literally living, mm-hmm. you know, within a close proximity. Yeah, it sounds sounds uh, suspiciously and frighteningly like 2016, right? <laughs> well, and you know they weren't able to survive their expansion. Uh, Rome was as a republic; they got to a size that the republic became unwieldy, mm-hmm. and that's when they switched over to an emperor. They ascent, well. You look at what's happening in this in this country right now, and what we're doing is. And, and Sheldon Wolin points this out. You know, here we go in our political rant again. But Wolin points this out that we've got a this inverted totalitarian sort of state that we inhabit. You know, where the democracy, the idea of democracy, is really a sham. Like on, on many fronts, at least. Um, you know, we have the the corporations that essentially control this country and the United Kingdom and most countries. the form of exactly. the democracy. But, you know, in this new universe, they don't even have that. They all... No. They all... Um, it's, you know, and the better leaders are the ones who will listen and seek consent of the governed. Um, so there is a sort of a... I wouldn't call it democracy, but they do... They do interact with their people and do. Yeah, like Rick uh, normally will take counsel. So it's not even democracy. What would you call that? I mean, just proto democracy or proto. I don't know. It's not like they're holding up hands, but they are sitting around in council. It's almost like they're going for, um, if they can get it, consensus. As opposed. To um, up or down, but sometimes they have to. And they'll either go with the majority, or um, you know, they'll go with Rick, uh, depending. Um, but like you know, everybody was trying to pull Madison down and stop her from doing something stupid. And she just wouldn't listen. And the pharmacist, nobody's even bothering to argue it. After some point, they try it first, and then okay, well he's made up his mind, so I guess we better do it. I'm thinking about, and both of our backgrounds coming out of literature, and I'm thinking about this guy who's a 
scholar of the Tudors uh, and the Stewarts up at Loyola University up in Chicago, and he he says one of the reasons that, that what became the United Kingdom, but it was then England and Scotland and Ireland and Wales, that one of the reasons England became powerful in the Renaissance was the fact that they were a single nation state. They weren't right. a bunch of little warring kingdoms that were thus you know, they were fragmented and thus not able to cooperate or not willing to cooperate. England had already done the initial stages of uniting itself. The so, um, the monarchy was beginning to exert control to some degree over the lower downs. Yeah, they exactly. So independent. Yeah, you don't have like you do in Germany, where you have all these different little nation states—Bavaria and Prussia, and you know all these, you know Saxony, all these other places. I mean, you've got one England, and then right to the north you've got Scotland, and then off to the west you've got Ireland. I mean, you and then well, and then on the same island you've got Wales, but you do have some sort of unity, some sort of co- cohesiveness. This is right now. It's more like it's more like you know the England of the Anglo you know Anglo Saxon culture. Are the are uh, Rome after Rome fell? You know, yeah, the yeah. Western Europe after Rome fell. What, what we now call the Dark Ages. They've got the Dark Ages with nukes. So what if somebody gets the codes? Uh, That's kind of well. Has anybody ever done that in Walking Dead, where they've actually got like a nuclear device on their hands no. or? No, nuclear's just been off the table here. Um, I think or any, or were, even anything else, like just any kind of explosives or... Oh, yeah. Just, yeah, they've blown up stuff. That's a you know, time-honored tradition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy. Uh, I like the scene. This is later in the narrative towards the end where Nick Nick is outside of the zombie pen. He realizes that some people are watching him from a distance. And right. this seems to be the point where the narcos discover the hotel, I guess. Right. Um so and it's got to be the setup for some future storylines, don't you think? Right. They just where left the, hanging this last week while he we went back and did we see Nick at all this most recent uh, I don't think so. It was flashbacks for Travis and Chris, and then the the hotel. That was and more really... just Madison and um, and Alicia rather than the whole. That was a great ender to uh, week before last to set us up for this next week. Where the lights are on, and Madison and the crew are you know they're they're clearly want i guess i guess she is wanting to attract you know her family back to the place, but with any of these kinds of decisions like this in the apocalypse the the decision always has multiple outcomes to it or multiple right i mean you know what she wanted didn't happen, which was um uh, coming back, but what was the dad's name um yeah travis 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 does that was that was really, really narratively very clever. They mm. have a guy shot from behind, and he's got dark hair. And you can't really see him. And then they move the, you know, pan the camera around, and there's Travis. Right. There. And so this has been his. He. It's almost. This should remind you of, of Odysseus in a way. You know, this is what yeah. led Odysseus back back home. He's only been gone for two days. Yes, yeah, <laughs> twenty years. <laughs> but he's had his own Trojan War. Much unlike Donald Trump's Vietnam War. Well, right. his is uh, you know, like the reunion between Odysseus and Telemachus, except his failed. 
like he's been trying to impart these values to Chris. And Chris understands those values. Like when he comes and talks his way into seeing his dad, he understands what's going on. This is These are the lessons that Chris, uh, Travis has been trying to teach him. But he's faking, you know, he's betrayed his father and those values. He just thinks they don't have a place in this world. And he's got a point, you know. Well, that's what I've said here weeks ago, that that a new new order demands new responses. I mean, a new ethic, a new everything, new social structure, new economic structure, new everything. Well, you know, in the original series, the first season was, kind of revolved around the tension between Rick and Shane and Shane was a little more ruthless than Rick was willing to be but by this point several seasons on Rick's done stuff that Shane never even dreamed of who who is Shane now? Shane was his best friend and also his wife's lover so uh, Uh a little dramatic tension there and um (laughs) You know, we never know if Shane really thought Rick was dead or if he abandoned him to be with uh, the spouse, you know. Um, and we don't even know for sure whose baby Julia is. Is it Shane's baby or Rick's baby? Mm-hmm. Um, because they had both been having sex with her. When Rick came back, she was having sex with Shane. I have to wonder in the in the course of these things. I want to bounce this off on your head. Um, these are almost, you know, characters can be archetypical. I would go so far as to say plots can be too. Yeah. And these are these are ancient kinds of plots. The exile and return narrative. This is basically what this is. It's right. an exile and return narrative, as well as an apocalyptic kind of a thing. And so I wonder how much the writers know about classical type narratives. You know, like. Odysseus wandering after the Trojan War, and you know, think, think, well, for that matter, Aeneas too. Um, right. But it, it makes you wonder about those kinds of things. I'm sure some of the writers have to be pretty well educated, kind of, you know, and there are only so many plots, so you want to right. recycle them. It's the it's the the effective writer that can take those things and can. Use them to you know to to create new effects or or, or give us a, right. another you know a, a, a richer understanding of human nature and human condition. Reuse these classic plots and hopefully right. different ways. But yeah. you know, do the same thing over and over. That's why uh, people are getting getting tired of zombie guts camouflage because everybody's doing that all the time. And the other series you've had maybe two or three times in five years. Well, this this brings up... A handful of times they've tried that strategy. This brings up our old professor and, and later colleague for you and me both that we've mentioned on the other podcast, Bob Youngman. And he used to say to us when I took him for Chaucer that it's the effective writer knows how to take those old formulas and those old plots and twist them. Right. Again, and that's that's where we get but, the delight know, from. That's what he said. They rarely tried to come up with an original plot. They would take old stories and rework them. Right. Yeah, he would. Who was it? Shakespeare, I guess, went to the Chronicles and like Holinshed and right. you know various other sources and and I guess Chaucer did that too with old folk tales and this that and the other and 
Well, even in music, you see J.S. Bach taking you know the, the idea of the fugue and counterpoint and perfecting them because they were already they were forms of music that were already being used. He just again he took them and made them better, so to speak. And right. Um, so, to me, that's sort of what's going on here in the sense that these are writers. And again, this is where they produce the delight. Youngman said to us was that when they take that old plot or those old kinds of characters too. And then they, again, put a twist on them so that it makes them that writer's character. It makes them something new. So, um, And maybe revelatory. There's a lot of discussion about how far is Chris gone. Like, Do we see him as justified in going with the bros? Or, uh, now, is this the second episode from last yeah. week? Okay, let me go to my notes for that one. Because he did betray his father, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, he kept his father alive. Yeah, um, what is this episode called? I don't remember. I have left my office. No, <laughs> I um, the last one was that pillar of salt, and I didn't think to write this one down. I, I, I'm calling these characters the the bros. I'm calling them the Amara Bros. <laughs> yeah, that's <sounds> good. <laughs> the Amara Bros. Only, they're only. They're down one now because uh, Baby James. Yeah, Baby James. They just shot him dead, you know, put him down like a dog. I don't know. I guess, in theory, they could have left him and Travis there, and Travis could have tried to nurse him back to health, but that's not the way plots work, if that makes sense. No, no, and it, like, I mean, it could have been. Why did Achilles' mother dip him in the river Styx? Like, most heels, one at a time, so you think, whatever, all the way, because it's a myth, and you always have to have a right. spot, so. Um, well, and it, frankly, I've read some, I've got some books here about, con, con, you know, constructing plots and so forth, and more than one says that the more characters that you have in a story, the more complex the story of a necessity must become, because then you've got more lines of you know, relationship that are created between one character and the rest of the characters. Right. So, frankly, and I don't think I, I could see some people saying this, and I would not agree with it, but I could see some people saying, "Well, this was gratuitous, just to off the guy." No, it's not, because again, it points up the new ethic of the of the post-apocalyptic world. I think it emphasizes so, yeah. it. Um, you know, you either pull your own weight, or we've got to kill you because we can't have you turn it. Broke. Yeah, because that's probably what would happen, isn't it? I mean, the guy could die anyhow because of going into septicemia or something. Then you've got right. to, you There's know, no one of the walkers. real evidence that he's getting better at all. It's been over a week and he's still laid up. I mean, he should be walking around within a day or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably he's getting some gangrene or something going. Um, That's what I'm thinking. And well and, and you have to wonder how much this was pretty interesting. That episode reveals more about Travis. We find out he's got some paramedic training. Right, a little bit. Remember he he stitches the guy's wound, uh which is First a pretty day. I mean that's uh that's almost like you know, 18th or 19th century era medicine, though, you have to imagine, because, I mean, we know these things today, but these people cannot do a lot of those things because they lack the power to do them. They lack the electricity or they lack the tools or they lack the the drugs to treat somebody. You know, just basic things like pain, you know, painkillers and that kind of thing, much less antibiotics, antivirals, and so forth. Right. If this had antibiotics to treat um 
he could have popped back much quicker. But just lying in bed like that, you worry. Infection will set in, and eventually he'll die. And they'll be munching their face off in the middle of the night. But the other <laughs> life-driven part of that is Travis would not be free to walk toward the light. Uh, right. The medicine was shining if the kid was still being nursed back to hell. Right. Well, and again, it reveals, too, that he's not yet willing to, I guess, to sacrifice some of his old way of looking at the world. You see him stitch that kid up, and he, the kid had been part of that group that wanted to kill him. Then you get Travis. Uh, this is a great line. The scene was almost poetic when he buries that dead farmer. It was. It was. It had a, a lyricism about it. And you remember his line? He says, "I didn't even know your name." Do you, I'm back. Do, yo, do you remember that passage? He buries the farmer, and he says, "I didn't even know your name." Okay, sorry, I'm back. Uh, but you remember the scene? He says, I, "I didn't even know your name when he's buried the guy." Oh right, and right, right. It, and it, and you know, found make, out. Well, and then it, it made me think of of Gray's elegy in a country churchyard. You know, you have all these unbar—I mean, these unknown people that are buried out there who themselves had their own dreams and hopes and fears, and only in a proto-romantic sort of sense would those be people who might could have achieved something else other than being just a country tradesperson or a day laborer. I mean, you see what I'm getting at. I mean, this, right. this uh, is another Tom human Wells being. Unbloodied uh, by his nation's blood because he's a pumpkin and never gets to become a dictator. <laughs> yeah, well, but 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 so and and you have this this guy with Travis that has this strong ethical moral core and is having to face these new challenges each day. I mean, it's, it makes you wonder how much of that, that old-fashioned kind of core is going to survive. Oh, yeah, and that's, uh, I think, the big debate between Chris and Travis um, is um, do these values hold? Is there a place for them in this world? And Chris says no, and he has a really searching point. There's the... Um, our old, our old, old um, Russian literature professor used to talk about inverse parallels in fiction, where as the father is showing more and more of his humanity, maybe the old humanity, the son is showing less and less of his, and that culminates in, it's, it's like an inverse relationship. That culminates in the scene where he betrays his father. You want to talk about that a bit? Right. Um it's like, yeah. Um, yeah. What did you think about that? I thought it was pretty powerful. You know, it's kind of a the, it, almost the Judas kiss kind of thing. Um, right. Yeah. Exactly. And so, who is right and who is wrong in this situation? I would think they both have the respect. Um, it's hard to argue. With um, what Chris does, you know, his dad can't accept it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
but his dad may, you know, I don't know. Overall, old virtue uh, to a degree, Rick still held on to his. So we know that over time, oil sucks for a lot. And these kids, whatever they have, they don't have oil. You know, they'll mm-hmm. turn on each other. And that's what Chris tells his dad. I know they'll turn on me at the drop of a hat. Right. I'm using them anyway. This, yeah, when when we have, you know, the farmer had been named Elias Waters, I guess. Uh, he and he and Chris had shared the same birthday. Uh, Chris says to his father, "He's not broken. He's good now." You remember because the whole right. time he has felt broken and he's felt cast aside, etc. When they pointed that out in the uh, in the in the uh, talking bit. Episode that these are the first people that have seen Chris as an asset. He's always been, you know, the kid that's something wrong with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, no, dude, uh, we need a guy that can pull the trigger. Is this the first time they they ask him this? I'm curious. The other guys ask him if uh, are you good, bro, and, and then they he's good. Is this the first time they've called him bro, or have they called him that before? I don't know. Because if it is, that's a that that is the turning point in their relationship. Exactly. To say. He's he's made his bones with the gang now. Yeah. And uh, especially they've got an opening. He's a made he's a made man. Does. He's a made man, as though it's a right. mafia or something, <laughs> or a very low rent mafia, but still. Well, you know, it was making you're making it by killing two people. Uh, right. You know, one time directly, and the other time holding his dad while they did the job. And, and I of think course, it is necessary to show us just how bad these guys are that Chris falling in with. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the the final scene? This is where Travis damns himself for doing or saying what he did to his son. You remember? He's he's. Evidently, he's. They're telling a lot of this in flashback, and they, apparently, he's using that. We're, that's giving us the illusion of the way he's telling this to Madison. Well, it may he, seem as though Chris is dead, but then he's not. So, I think. Um, I think both Madison and Travis are taking on too much responsibility for their, you know, young adult children. Um, you know, you can't make choices for other people. Especially, you know, 16 is going to be grown now. Mm-hmm. You can't keep him safe. And that was all, you know, and she was trying to get, because she's been, she's a lot further down that road than Travis. Uh, because Nick has been out for, for years, possibly, mm-hmm. uh, on his own. Yeah, let's. Uh, we ought to spend some time on that because we've talked about the tribalism and the, the tribe being the kind of the ancient way, really, of, of people organizing themselves. Right. In traditional cultures, you are considered an adult a lot of the time when you hit your, you know, like your mid-teens, say 15, 16 years old. Right. Uh, even even in early America, I mean, and I'm not talking, I mean, the Native American culture, uh, a lot of that, but also even in the Anglo culture, in the European cultures of various kinds, you're... 16, 17 years old, and you're fighting in the Revolutionary War. I mean, you're packing a gun, you know, and off camera or whatever you're doing, you're, you know, behind a, a mule or a horse or something, plowing a field, and you're harvesting crops, this, that, and the other. But you are considered a man or a young woman. 
at that age. He's not 21. Today, we people to stay out of the job market, so, um, and also they're being in a much more complex society. Mm-hmm. We have to, um, you know, train for a lot longer to get ready to do that role. Um, but even a hundred years ago, people were getting married much younger than they are now. And yeah, well, my parents were families. pretty young. Yeah, my, my, I mean, my mom was, I think, 20. My dad was 23, maybe, something like that. Yeah, so they were like, like the age of our college uh, kids. Either 19 and 21 or 21 and 23. I can't remember. But, you know, still what we would consider kids today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, it's, you see, in a way, society has devolved in the course of this story. Um, but based on the cataclysm or based on the the zombie apocalypse, you know, this you well, know, germ you know, or whatever the thing south is. South of the border, they probably still do, you know, start living as adults much younger than we do here. So, mm-hmm. you know, the people he's running into, Nick especially, the Colonia, aren't that much older than him. But this, he's been on his own for a while. This brings up something that I, this is nothing against the narrative so much as it's just not something I relate to, but maybe you can comment on, is the dynamic of rivalry between the two siblings. And and then one, you know, in the form of Alicia trying to get close to her mother and feeling shut out and more or less having to raise herself, and then you have the problems with, with Nick. It, wait a minute, which one is her brother? Is it Nick or Chris? Nick. The other one's a stepbrother. It okay. seems like... Um you know, this was the episode where Madison, the last one, most recently, Madison finally reaches some clarity about, although, you know, we don't know that it, it'll last, but after her fiasco with turning the light on, she realizes um, you know, she needs to make some kind of amends to her daughter. How how realistic would you say that is with somebody? Because I did not grow up with my siblings, even oh. though I've got several. I mean, how how realistic was that for you having a yeah. sibling? Well, was that pretty believable? You think, or somewhat for a regular brother and sister? But he got a drug addict. That is totally <laughs> the way it works. Like, uh, did you ever watch that intervention show? Mm-mm. You know, the whole family revolves around the user whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever, um, you know, they are the chaos at the core of the family system. And they wind up getting everybody, sucking up the attention from everybody. So it winds up being the unwelcome guest in the family. Yeah, in a sense, the family comes to depend on it. Like, you'll see these examples where um, the one kid that's acting out will wind up getting killed or put in jail or something, and the other kid that's not acting out will start, you know, because mm-hmm. um, the family needs that dynamic. Oh, so that's their normal, so to speak? or Yeah. You know, this has been their normal for years. Madison Mount looking for Chris. <laughs> I mean, um, mm-hmm. hey, hey. Well, this now, and this is really interesting. Here we've got 
Madison letting Travis behind the fence. This reminds me, I'm going to bounce this off on your head, this reminds me of ancient cities where the protection is not a fence, but it's a wall. And right. so you have the cities of Europe like that, like London. You know, I've been trying to think of other, other cities that would have started the same way, but they would have been walled. Uh, I would imagine Paris. But anyhow, the, the cities would have been walled cities. They must say Troy. Yes, Troy, absolutely. Uh, so these are their, you know, again, it's it's almost as though society is devolving instead of evolving. Um, well, you know, those old things work for a reason. Um, so it's like a return to, <laughs> I can't say a simpler time. It's just a, it's a return to a scarier time, maybe is a better right. way to put it. Um, well, and uh, I think they got to decide now. How many of these people do we let in? It looks like they were in the process by the end of the episode. How many people does it look like? I mean, to me, it looked like several hundred. They had like a parking lot downstairs with a bunch of people in it, but I couldn't tell how many, maybe 20. But they were wanting to see if they were healthy and had something to contribute before they invited them into the Hotel Papa. (laughs) So again, it's it's a balance because you want a lot of people to defend yourself, but you only have certain supplies. Boy, this is this has got a lot to say about the whole immigrant issue right now, with undocumented workers and so forth. Because these are immigrants, or so really refugees. I mean, I've even heard some some of the you know undocumented workers called you know refugee workers and that kind of thing. Because a lot of them are again they're fleeing a terrible economic yeah, situation like in America. Foot, the United States yeah. is defunct in Mexico that's kind of limping along. Yeah, what if our people were fleeing to, you know, the area south of the border, you know, to somewhere to Latin America? Particularly after a cataclysm like a, you know, like a pandemic or something. Right. The whole going golf thing didn't work out last season. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, that would, that would be, uh, Except that you said that another series is doing that now. Is it Z Nation or whatever, where they're they're playing it more for laughs? Yeah, it's a lot more. I mean, it's not totally funny, but they have a lot more uh, irony and, and humor. <laughs> so that would be a good place to have somebody that's uh, some libertarian bro that sort of gets it, you know, because he <laughs> he's not willing to work with other people. Mm-hmm. So he buys the farm or whatever. Well, I didn't. I uh, I like this line by Travis. He agonizes. I left him. He was my son, and I left him. I failed him, and I failed her. And I assume that to mean his dead wife. Right, because he promised to take care of Chris. And then he, then he ends by saying, "I forgot to tell him I loved him." And I'm thinking, God, this is like all survivors' guilt and parental right. guilt, you know, because the survivors' guilt is compounding the parental guilt. Don't you think? Yeah, and I think at some level. Chris, that resonates with Chris. Um, we just don't know what it'll take to bring out the decent side of him again. What did you think about? Now, this was pretty revelatory. This little twist here. Uh, Alicia and Madison were having an exchange about her father, and it turns out he didn't crash his car as Madison had related. Instead, he had actually killed himself. Yeah, that makes sense. 
um, he couldn't take life, and I'm thinking he couldn't take life anymore. And I'm thinking a lot of that was what you were just saying. He couldn't take Nick's drug abuse and all the, you know, problems that swirl out of that drug abuse. Don't you imagine? I mean, right. Yeah. Too much chaos. Um. So is that again because I didn't grow up with my siblings? Uh, was that pretty realistic for you as far as? Are believable for you as far as the treatment of the characters? And... I think so. I can see people, you know, people hide suicide at times. So I can see Madison doing that. The stigma may be associated with it. Well, and for her it was um, she didn't want to influence Nick to follow his dad's example and kill himself. Right, because it does run in family sometimes, or at least the emotional state back of it does. Yeah, and probably the truth that if he if his father had done it, Nick might have some of the same triggers within him. Where if, if right. something you know triggered him to do it, he could do it, especially if he's using drugs. Yeah, I um I personally think Nick's more likely to die from an overdose accidentally than commit suicide. But you know. She's paranoid for him now. <laughs> well, speculate a bit, because next week is going to be the season finale. So we won't see any more of these characters until, what, next August or whenever it is? Maybe the spring. They've been splitting the season up. So do you think uh, anybody's going to buy the farm next week? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if any of our core will, but some people have to. It'll... We only had one death last week. You know, that, <laughs> We've got to jack, up the, jack um, up the body count again, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I well, think there will be conflicts with both humans and walking dead. Um, what about Ophelia? What do you think is going to happen with her? I don't know. I mean, the chances of her bow being up there are very minimal. The chances of finding him are even less than that. I think maybe she'll run into her dad. I wonder if these characters will pack their bags and leave Baja California and go back into the United States eventually. I don't know. They keep saying there's nothing there. They saw it burn. And Chris is like, whatever, dude. So Chris might wind up back there, and Ophelia might. Oddly enough, the Hispanics in the group. In the other series, they have established or have how much of a of, um, of a network of communities have, have these people been able to rebuild? In other words, and, and how have they done it? In other words, I mean they they they've got transportation of us. I'm assuming they've got cars and trucks and so forth, and they'll run on gas so they can get from point A to point B. Right. Uh, do they have? Well, do they have various kinds of, of uh, telecommunications, like, say, whatever? I mean, They're like. Not walkies, talkies, that's about it. Do they have any kind of, um, well, any kind of grid reestablished where they could get on, you know, I don't say like an internet, but even even like a, say, radio, you know? No radio. Um, Alexandria has electricity. Uh, I think they have solar panels that were there before the fall. Um, I'm, th- I'm sitting here thinking, if you had a radio, a shortwave, and you had a generator, you could communicate with somebody else. I mean, the law of averages would say that, provided there are other people out there. Right. Somebody else that had a had a radio with it. You don't have to have even a grid then. You just have a generator and fuel to power the thing. Right. 
then you might could hail somebody on the on the radio on that shortwave set. And those things have, you know, a few thousand miles range a lot of the time, particularly if they're one that's really been juiced up. But, you know, you might what be we in, saw early on with Alicia is that can be used to try to steal your boat. So. Yeah. So it could be a scary kind of a thing. Right. Once again. So I keep, I keep holding out the hope that we'll establish some sort of contact with this body here and there's, you know, somebody else, let's say that's in Seattle, you know, or they're in wherever else, they're in the Midwest, maybe in the ruins of Chicago or whatever, you know. The short wave is pretty sturdy. So you could, yeah. You know, but we haven't seen any signs of short waves yet. Then not even on the other series or? Uh-uh. Nobody's bothering with it. See, that right there, that would be a... And I don't know if that's up their sleeve, you know, for future episodes, but that would be a, a way that they could reach people. I mean, I, I know I'm using those things in my, my stories because they use them quite a lot in, 19, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And so it's pretty common. Again, you, know, you might not want to reach people. You might have as many people as you can handle, and you don't want any more, which is kind of the situation at the hotel. So the shortwave opens you up to danger, in other words. Right. That would have to be pretty scary. <laughs> that would have to be pretty scary. Um, do you get the feeling that, that everybody is walking around practically with PTSD? I mean, I, I was kind of getting that. I think that's why people keep cracking, like uh, Salazar and uh, some degree Madison and the pharmacists. You know, they're all uh, reaching their breaking point some degree or another. You would have to after after this sort of mass death event, wouldn't you? I mean, that's sort of a given. Because how, how much can so, the human yeah. psyche... Yeah, I mean, how much trauma can the human psyche take? Well, let you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... So, next week will be the two-hour finale for this right. thing. So... I'm assuming they'll start at their normal time and just run an extra hour then at 8 Central. Probably. They don't like to run really violent stuff early. Which me, it's going to be almost like two episodes in one at two hours. Yeah. Um, so I've got a feeling there are going to be some big game changers next week for them to end up like this with you know a two-hour finale or whatever that's it's probably going to be some pretty explosive events that um, you know that, that have taken place or that will take place. I'm hoping they'll use it as a time to bring Salazar back on. I really like him. No, I did. He's as mysterious again. I keep saying as, as Strand is, and I, and I just like I like Ruben Blattis a lot as an actor. And so you could, I mean, I could see that guy heading some group of his own. Frankly, couldn't you? Yeah. Or maybe doing covert operations or something. You know? <laughs> uh, by the way, that was something that was mentioned with the um, with the Ophelia character. You remember of all the revelations about her? They had left their old situation back in El Salvador to come here, but they were pretty, you know, screwed up people because of what they had right. seen back in the, in the old country. Your father was hard, and I was hard, or your father's hard. Yeah, and that's that's enough of a of a tease there that 
God knows what those people are capable of, particularly you know, particularly the dad. Well, of course, the mother, of course, is no longer with us. But the well, they're dad, capable of what until they break down. <laughs> yeah. It all goes away. Yeah. Uh, so you wonder what what could happen, and, you know. If if again, if they bring him back, and she again, she was very circumspect in the way she approached the business about Salazar. You know, is he still with us? Well, first she said one thing, and then she kind of she immediately kind of corrected herself. So I don't know again how much of the you know the subsequent scripts that she has seen, or or maybe she's been cautioned. Don't say too much. I, I suspect both of those are true. Mm-hmm. Don't you imagine? I mean. Um, Oh yeah. They were saying that about the woman that plays Madison. What what's her name? Do you know? Um is it Annie? She supposedly knows more about some of the upcoming scripts than some of the rest of them than some of the rest of them do. Um so you think they may be doing that for a reason, you know, to try to keep the, all the knowledge concentrated in just a few hands, especially in this day and age. I bet you there are people that are so anxious to read the upcoming scripts out there well, that they will try to... When they're filming separately, I don't know if they know what's going on with other people. Part of that is just logistics. You don't have time. You know what I'm thinking about, though, is these people that pirate films, you know, they'll go and <laughs> before the film is released to the general public, you know, you'll get this pirated edition. I bet there are people that are dying to <laughs> do something like that with... Fear the Walking Dead and try to release the scripts early, or you know, release or God forbid, even re- release the the actual films. You know, each week's episode early. Yeah, except most people don't want to know. So, um, right, but I'm just thinking there would be there would be people like that. There would be um, some that want to know. Yeah. Um, so, but it's it will be interesting to see how their characters develop. Yeah. So I would I don't know. It doesn't look like there's any way to get them back together in two hours. There's far apart. So I guess we'll continue the separate subplot since the new season opens up next year. But we'll see. Maybe they'll get them all back together. Because, they could. Uh, if, yeah, it probably, I guess. Travis it, was kind of have his head in being back. You know, he was back, but he was too eaten up by guilt. Yeah, that closing scene with him was pretty powerful where he's there in the shower uh-huh. And that's a very symbolic scene. He's trying to clean up, but he's trying to wash away his guilt, too, don't you think? Right. I mean, I was sitting there thinking that. I mean, that's a a very common image. And you, you see that, you know, the obsessive-compulsive type that will wash their hands constantly. They get locked into that. It's almost like an endless loop in a computer program. And Madison yeah. has an advantage over him in this. She does have a child there. Yeah. The child does share her basic value system actually wants to be around her. It's just she can't bring herself to look at um, Alicia's needs because she's so focused on Nick. So if she can maintain her her um, focus on the here and now and not the, you know, whatever, uh, maybe he'll come back to me if I, you know, do something really dumb. Aren't they? They're a blended family, too, aren't they? Uh, right. Madison's family and, and Travis's Madison family. Madison so. and... Uh, Nick and Alicia are blood relatives, and then uh, Chris is son of uh, Travis. Of Travis, and both and of them lost their family. previous spouses for various right. reasons. So that, that zombies are <laughs> So 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 that complicates things. You know, you got that. You know, the, the normal stresses of a blended family, and then they're 
they're compounded by the, the zombie apocalypse. Right. Uh, <laughs> I wonder what the divorce rate is like in the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Probably not that high because uh, you just kill them all. I tell you, it's um. What do you well, what do you think for this week? Is kind of the the controlling image. I was trying to think of that myself. I like that um, last scene of the shower. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to wash away your guilt and maybe wash away what he's seen. Uh, because he's seen some pretty horrific stuff and some pretty devastating stuff too. With the, yeah, with I the, think um, from both sides of that relationship, there's a lot of survivors going on and they're having to deal with the fallout of, you know, their own shortcomings with regard to their children. And it did seem that was a nice thing between Alicia and Madison, where. Madison finally says, okay, I didn't love you any less. I just thought you were okay. Um, I had to be okay. <laughs> right, that yeah. That is like a drug, you know, families that have a drug addict within them, there's a lot of that. Everybody's sucking it up because this other person taking all the care. Yeah, I wrote a note to myself about that. True confessions time, because that's what this was. Madison's always loved Alicia, but thought she was, quote, all right, unquote. She was a good girl. And, yeah. And, you know, the good kid often doesn't get the attention. There was a... Did you ever watch Pieces of April? It's a indie film. Mm-mm. Uh, who's the woman that married uh, Tom Cruise for a while? Oh. Uh, uh. I'm not sure. Oh, oh Nicole, Nicole Kidman? No, 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 the young one. Oh, I'm not the sure. <laughs> young one, they got married. Yeah, you know, they uh, had a... But she was the, the star of the film, or...? Yeah, and she was this girl that had always been kind of the rebel, and, um... Um... She had invited the family over for dinner because her mother was dying of cancer. And uh, yeah. they, and April is the one that's always gotten the attention. Katie Holmes. Okay. And um, April is the one that always got all the attention because she was the one rebelling and running away. She's not particularly on drugs, but is shacking up with an African American and <laughs> Wow cue the descending minor scale. Right, right. right. So dun, anyway, dun, dun. Uh the middle sister is the good girl and she's trying to get her mother's attention and her mom just won't give her any, you know, like she starts singing this beautiful operatic song in French on the way to see April and her mom seems like rolling her eyes, Well, oh, this be over, you know. Uh, so that's, that's, I think, Alicia's situation. She's the lost child. Uh, the one that's lost at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Nick's the one going out and trying to get lost. She's the one trying to get attention. So the attention that Nick can't stand. And that's where this kind of thing 
escapes me. Does that make sense? Because I, as I said, since I didn't grow up with my siblings, I can't right. really understand that. I mean, really, it just it goes right. That's past dynamic. Me. Yeah, it's just it's alien to me. Well, I mean, honestly, it is alien to me because I didn't grow up with my younger sister, and my three younger brothers. So it's like that's just I don't know. It's just so it's helpful for me to see situations like that. But in, even then, I'm, I'm I'm looking at it essentially as an observer or an outsider. It's not well, a participant. Not every family is dysfunctional in the same way. So um, you know, I can't really. I've seen this with other people. It wasn't my experience either. You were more of an observer too, probably most of the time. Well, and I mean, you know, Gail and I, my sister weren't perfect, but neither one of us was out getting higher, running off, or, you know, doing all this stuff to require all the attention. <laughs> or out killing zombies. <laughs> that would prevent the other one from ever getting any attention. We both, you know, each had our own times when we would get attention, and then the other one would have their time. So. Um, but Madison has been unable to divert her attention from trying to run after Nick and clean up after him, uh, you know, get him, trying to pull him back on the right path. She needed Alan on, uh, you know, <laughs> for family members, you know. A lot of that program is letting go, you know. You've got to release with love. <laughs> wow. You know, I love yeah. him. I want him back, but he's his own man, and he's made his decision, and, you know, I need to live my life with the family I have around me. And that's, that's got to be hard to do, too. Yeah, she's got the mother's heart, and, you know, she tries to tell Travis, you know, and this, she really does understand what Travis is going through, because she's had that guilt with Nick for years. <laughs> and Were they? she also knows that it's futile, but she's also unable to accept the futility of it. You know, she's She's just barely, you know, last night she was lighting up the beacon to try to mm-hmm. get Nick back. So it's not like she's coming from a place of uh, a whole lot of, um, where she's advanced a whole lot over where he is. I and hope they talk about hope. that, I think, you know, our primary role is as parents to these kids we have, mm-hmm. not as partners to each other. I thought that was his implication, like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um that relationship has to take a back seat to being parents to the kids in the apocalypse. Because the kids are not all right. Oh, uh, it, it it made me think. I was really struck by something Madison said. Um, if I can find this, and I wrote this thing down. It was pretty, it's another one of these quotes where it kind of captures the character or it captures the episode or just captures the scene. Mm-hmm. If I can find the thing. But it's when she's standing there with all of those other people. Let's see if I can find this doggone thing here. Um, let me see. Yeah, this is when Madison is in the hotel, and they're, I guess this is when they're trying to save Strand. Anyhow, when she makes this pronouncement, she says, if anyone raises a hand to another, he's out. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Madison being strong. I like that Madison. Well, I it, she does it, something, you know. It reminded me of the of ancient cultures too, where you have to have. I mean, at some point, the ancient culture, as you know, has to put down. You know, not just 
mores and so forth, but they have to they'll essentially have to codify what they believe about themselves and the world around them. And some of that's going to be a legal code. And I'm thinking about the the guy that you know predates Moses. Is it Hammurabi or whatever his name is? You know, the Babylonian guy. And they think that possibly some of the Mosaic code may be pulled from that. Well, uh, and this is more almost like tribal loyalty. You have to be right. loyal to the members of the tribe, but. They but you get the like point. They, I mean, it's it's something that it's got to give them a sense of order. You know, you've got to have that sense of order, or, uh, or you got the chaos. Yeah, you've got the chaos. Well, and there goes civilization too. And, and then, right. then you got more walkers out on the loose. So you may not be happy with something somebody else does, but you can't just lift up your hand against them. Uh, that was Madison being strong and resolute and taking the action necessary. Uh, but the minute her ears hear the list little uh, hint about Nick, it all goes out the window. It just, you know. This is something um, else that, that makes the series for me very effective narratively because you're watching the events of the apocalypse or the post-apocalypse unfold as they happen. Uh, it's not where – I mean, I would like to see something down the road again where they, you know, telescope time, say, 50 years hence. But but it is good to see right now. I've never done anything like that, so I don't know if he can expect it. Yeah, I didn't know if if if, if I, I'm just wondering from the screenwriters if they've got any plans like that down the you know down the road sometime. But right now we're watching it essentially as they as, as they experience it. We're watching it unfold, you know, in the same time frame where they're. Well, their time it is running much more slowly than our time. But I mean, it, but it's something like our time, if that makes right. any sense. So we're, we're, in other words, we're eyewitnesses to it, just like they yeah, are. Yeah, each episode unfolds in real time. It's just that not much time has passed mm-hmm. because you don't have as many episodes as you have days in real life. I think that gives a, an immediacy, but also, I mean, a lot. It gives suspense to it too because you don't know where this thing is going. Right. It's not like it's not like uh, the the opposite. The the back end of that would be. Well, I remember what the apocalypse was like, and this is, you know, the year 2066. You know, in other words, it's 50 years out, or something. Right. I guess in their case, 60 years out. No, it's actually 2010, and so I mean, it's a few years ago, but still, it's essentially taking place in our time. Now, and wasn't so, it 2012 when um, the thing broke out? And you remember there were some dates that you would see um, back in Los Angeles, or am I wrong about that? I don't know. That sounds right. I mean, y'all, y'all were following. You and Quinn are following the regular series more than I do because I just I didn't know the series. I mean, I would see ads but for it, but I've just never watched it. This was in the new series. You know, the first couple of episodes, you would see them running down the staircase, and there would be some kind of uh, you know sign up that would have the date. Right. I thought yeah, it, I thought we were in 2012, but then. The last couple of weeks have been in 2010. We saw that on headstones when he made those crude crosses over those graves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. That, that, but I was just going to say. So that, that, but that does. It's a very, it's a very subtle and yet necessary way for them to ground this in a certain time and a certain place. I mean, that is part of the setting. Right. uh, Geography and time both are part of setting. And. um, you know, they've got smartphones and stuff in this version of the apocalypse. They're just not working anymore, but, you know, you've had them. Would they work if they had electricity? I mean, I guess... Uh, I mean, they'd come on. It, whatever you'd be able to have without the uh, the cell tower system. Mm-hmm. 
So you might have just some of the the functions like a calculator and a whatever. Right, else whatever you your have phone will do when it's offline, it'll do them. But mm-hmm. I don't think um, you know there'd be much communicating going on. I mean, you know, there might be some patches for the internet to survive. Who knows? That's what I'm still wondering. I mean, that's you know, it'll, again, it'll be interesting to see if somebody just a simple thing like the shortwave, which is technology that's been around since the 20s or 30s, I think, if somebody gets a shortwave and gets that thing up and running, what can happen then? Because uh, they did have the radio aboard Strand's boat, you know, aboard the Abigail. Right. Yeah, that, those ideas are working. That's true. I guess those are kind of shortwave-ish. Yeah, they're probably using that. It might have been satellite radio for all we know. But, yeah, I mean, it is it is using some sort of radiophonic technology, so you know, transmitting that signal through well, the Well, we know they had the, the regular old-fashioned radio because that's what Alicia was using. Like folks have had for probably 100 years. Yeah, well, yeah, years. Since, again, since the, since the 20s and 30s. Right. You know, that's, that's, that is old technology now. It's nothing new. Oh, yeah. Well, I see we've been doing a little over an hour, so uh, about an hour and a half. Do you have anything you'd like to? I can't think of anything. Uh, I think this is kind of get this back up to speed and get this ready yeah. for the season finale for next ready week. Ready for the finale. All right. Well, for the uh, Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. I'm Steve Payne. We want to thank all of you for tuning in and helping us uh, sort out these very pressing <laughs> questions. We hope that you'll join both of us and maybe Quinn for next week's edition of the Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast. Bye for now. 